Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Annie Burke, and this is New Books and Film. What are you doing right now? I mean, besides listening to this podcast, are you commuting to or from work? Are you doing laundry or making dinner? Are you listening to this to procrastinate your work? Or are you listening to this for work? Both. Neither. Why are you listening right now? And when you're done, what are the odds that next you'll pull up some goofy TikToks on your phone? Okay, before I get too meta about this, let me introduce our guest, Madeline Lane McKinley, a lecturer at... Uh, UC Santa Cruz and author of the book Comedy Against Work, Utopian Longing in Dystopian Times. Dr. Lane McKinley is here to discuss Comedy Against Work, which came out last month. It's November 2022 from uh, Common Notions Press. Madeline, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little about yourself and how you got into comedy and media scholarship? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a long version of every story. So maybe I'll start (laughs) in the 90s, I was a kind of comedy geek in elementary school who would um, record things on VHS tapes, um, and then record over those and record over those. And I got exposed to a lot of comedy really early on. um, And, you know, was the movie reviewer for my high school newspaper and things like that. And, um, and then I went to grad school, I I studied literature at uh, University of Chicago, and then I got a PhD at, at UC Santa Cruz. And um, I really, you know, comedy was there, comedy and media scholarship were there the whole time, but I really returned to them after um, getting my PhD and spending a lot of time kind of reflecting on, you know, why did I, why did I study literature all that time? And what was it, what was it getting at with what was the purpose of that for me? Um, and, um, a lot of that just, you know, post-grad school was inviting myself to, um, apply some of that work to, um, things that I care about and the things that I see other people caring about, including, including my students and friends and people peripheral to the academy or even kind of against the academy, um, so I think that's kind of uh, how I, you know, crept around and then returned to <laughs> this form of scholarship. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, I mean, comedy nerd and high school newspaper movie critic sound like I feel like I'm li- like listening into a mirror, looking into a mirror <laughs> when you say that. Um, and I think, yes, and with comedy, it always seems to start very young, that interest in it. But the examples you give, as we're going to talk about, are um, all pretty contemporary, or I should say that there's a lot of links to the, the present, which I imagine was one of the great joys and, and challenges of writing the book. But yeah. um, so as you sort of moved into away from sort of literature proper with a capital P into the study <laughs> of comedy and, and popular culture. Um, how did this particular project about comedy work, utopias and dystopias, how did this project evolve? Um, yeah. So that, that theoretical foundation um, that I got from grad school, you know, um, include included a lot of, you know, careful studying of utopian theory and literature and Marxist feminism and, um, you know, the Frankfurt School and things like that. And I think all of that kind of seeps into the project. But there was just a period after after getting my PhD where I was reflecting on um, my experiences as a worker in the university California <laughs> and my my previous union is currently on strike so I have to say you know solidarity with the strikers um, UAW um, strikers across the UC system I was um, in that union for eight years and know deeply those struggles and um, I was thinking about that a lot and thinking a lot about you know what it was like to be a parent Um in grad school, I became a parent in my first year in the PhD program, um, and the challenges of that and the isolation of that. And I think that just there was a period of, of reflection that allowed me to kind of reconnect with comedy as not just how I coped and, you know, turned off the clock um, which obviously I don't think I really did. That that's part of <laughs> part of what I'm writing about and through and against in this book. Um, that tension, but um, yeah, it allowed me to kind of think about what I was doing with comedy that whole time and kind of look at comedy as a a utopian through line um, of of my whole life, really. Um, that. Um, deserved revisiting, but also seemed to speak to, um, a lot of the struggles I was, I was observing as a, as a worker in the university system and, um, living in collective houses and having friends who worked in all sorts of really different and difficult job situations. (laughs) Um, so yeah, I think just, having a desire to synthesize those experiences, I think, um, was a lot of where the book came out of. Um, well, you write, um, you write this book. I mean, there's, I love in many ways, this book is like, if you could pick all the things I want to hear about in a book, your book, like it has so many <laughs> wide ranging examples, but everything I wanted to know and think and talk about. So that's, one reason I was so excited to have you on the show. And I want to get into the meat of your argument, but you're, 
I, I also did want to talk about the sort of personal way that it's written. And mm. I feel like you've led me right there. So maybe we can sure. just talk about that first. That you write, you incorporate your own voice and experiences as a parent, as a teacher, mm-hmm. um, as an academic, talking about sort of like the awkward cocktail party conversation that people have in <laughs> academia. Mm-hmm. I'm reminded, I wanted to pull out um, this passage you have about the stew and I lost it I'm sorry but oh no here we go because I'm looking in the wrong place so it's about um you talk about much of this book has been written from my kitchen mostly at a desk beside a window but also from the kitchen counter where I move between paragraphs and chopping vegetables on a butcher block beside the stove where I every so often dip my wooden spoon into a pot and stir I've come to understand stew much like this book as both parts labors of love and work housework strike never one without the other I thought that was great I wanted to or our listeners to hear it. But <laughs> was you. that originally when you when you conceived of this project, mm-hmm. did you know you were going to be in it in a way that many authors don't sort of feature as characters, as as full people in their monographs? Mm-hmm. Was that something that you knew you wanted to do when you started, or was that something that you realized at some point, I can't write this book without putting myself in it? Or it would help hmm. to put myself in it. I think that a lot of what I'm doing in the book is messing around with genre. And Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that was important to me. It was also, I have to give credit to my, to my editor, Andy Battle, who read an earlier draft and just thought, you know, these, these moments where you do appear um, are good. (laughs) Keep doing Mm -hmm. that. Because I think I, I was having a, well, I'll say it this way, being, very much conditioned as an academic and having spent, you know, one, one year outside of (laughs) academia in my adult life, um, still, uh, which I spent on a Greyhound bus listening, listening to comedy and reading comedy (laughs) and things like that, you know, as I look back. Um, but I, I was reconciling with, you know, how discouraged I'd always been from using that personal voice in any, any academic writing and, in the experience I have as a writing, a writing and composition teacher of um, working with students who, um, who have been told their whole lives never to use the first person in their writing. And, you know, suddenly with a change of genre, you know, and an invitation to do that, something really unlocks and is, you know, it's a beautiful thing to, to watch. Um, So I spent a lot of time kind of thinking about that methodologically, but I'm also writing a lot about comedy as a form of um, feminist writing. And so I think I wanted to take that seriously at a formal level, you know, and not just thematically, right? It seemed really appropriate that I um, get at that at all levels. (laughs) Well, as a reader, it's very rewarding because you sort of get to feel like you're watching the book get made oh, as cool. you're reading the book. <laughs> um, it's trippy. No, it's but it is. It's in a larger feminist re- tradition of writing right. um, that is that is that certainly pays off. But I want to make sure you get a chance to talk about the book oh, itself you. and yeah. not necessarily just. <laughs> that you wrote the book and how you wrote it, but I want to talk about comedy and work, obviously. Well, I'm um, glad that Stu came up because that's... Stu, I think we got to talk Stu. <laughs> we got to talk about Stu. Slide. And 
thinking about how you're using um, comedy to cope with like to cope or to get through the day, Mm -hmm. get through the work day, even though it is to work is I think going to resonate with a lot of listeners Mm -hmm. who are writers, critics and academics. Um, I have such a hard time because like my hobby, my, my favorite thing to do when I'm not working is to watch movies and TV. And my job is to write and think about movies and TV. (laughs) So sometimes I can't, I think like I have to find something to watch. I'll be like, Oh, let's watch this. I'm not going to find anything good or interesting in this. Mm -hmm. So I won't have to turn that part of my brain on, but it's very hard to like find something. Not only you're like, I don't want to like this and I don't want to find it interesting. Like if there's anything (laughs) even mildly provocative in it, I'm going to like, that's going to get switched on. Mm-hmm. And then the work day is back on. Um, so it means watching, purposely watching really vapid things, but that can't even be like in a cultural studies way interesting because you're like, oh, no, I'm back. Like watching <laughs> F-Boy Island. But now something is like rattling around and I'm thinking about. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I totally relate. <laughs> so work is, as you know, your it, work is our social totality. That's me quoting you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know that. But in case a listener wants to know, the work is our social <laughs> so t- totality. And you look at examples really very wide ranging from the TV sitcom and the form of the sitcom, a historic comedy club strike um the genre of the self-help podcast and many and you know many other forms as you say forms and genres of comedy and um sort of expositions narrativizations of work Mm um when putting this book together how did you decide what would and wouldn't count as work when everything is work but also that's sort of the problem you're trying to address which is everything is work but not everything can or should be work Mm mm-hmm yeah, that's such a good question. Um, well, I want to think about it from in terms of anti-work. Um, what is and isn't anti-work? Um, and I think a lot of my project is, <laughs> I like to joke, I, I huffed a lot of Frederick Jameson in grad school. It's like permanently in my brain. Um, but his thinking around the utopian impulse um, is clearly really, um, foundational for me. And like the joke about Frederick Jameson, right. Is that he can find utopia in, in anything. Um, and I, I'm kind of following that, um, tradition, I think, or I'm looking at anti-work as a utopian impulse that you can find anywhere if you look hard enough. Right. Um, and so, I was trying in the book at least to um, balance out some like rather straightforward examples like the office or yeah, the comedy worker strike of uh, 1979 or things like this, but to build towards, um, you know, some examples that are not straightforward and um, kind of model for the reader uh, a way of reading a way of, thinking about comedy that builds towards a practice of comedy, right? So um, on the one hand, yeah, The Office seems like a really great example because everyone has at least heard of it. But at this point, everyone has seen an Office episode or a meme or something like this. And um, so it's useful to me to turn to to objects like that, and to draw out some of the tensions in them, you know, on the one hand, it's a show about 
the absurd, the American version is especially conflicted, I think, but it's a show about the absurdity of work, um, paper company in a paperless economy. I mean, it can, can get more definitional than that. And then it's also about this like romantic vision of the workplace as not, not just family, but like better than family. Right. Um, it's where you want to escape your family to, or like where you can really fall in love and things like that. Um, so having a lot of examples like that, that felt, um, yeah, fairly relatable seemed important to me or, um, yeah, um, explicit about its content and it, this this relationship between work and, and comedy. But then I was really thinking, you know, the stew example is is a good one uh, about, you know, how does this happen in my kitchen, right? And how does um, comedy take place, you know, in my relationship with my partner as we negotiate these moments where, like, capitalism is like pitting us against each other in this most intimate way and how do we use comedy more intentionally as a way of um relating to each other and um you know extending care to one another in you know not just to um you know, grease the wheels, right? Like not, not just to, to make this unbearable situation more bearable, but to actually kind of inhabit this critical space together and collectively. So I was hoping that, you know, by the end of the book, you kind of have this sense of comedy as, you know, much more than, you know, episodes of the, the office or these, you know, various stand-up routines or things like that. And as a kind of way, way of life or, um, revolutionary practice in some way. So um, the hope was that the examples kind of um, broke apart and had that possibility. That makes sense. Yes. And you talk about this comedy as a practice. I want to pull out another phrase or I should say like passage that you talk about how comedy is a practice of refusal, a mode of critique and a place to begin imagining and enacting a life against work. So thinking about comedy as an anti-work practice, as an anti-capitalist potentially practice, but that it is also, as you talk about, it's a very fraught relationship because comedy is an industry. It's also used to cope so that people can further continue in their work or um, can sort of um, just live alongside capitalism or live inside it. Um, So I guess when you think about like these different exhibits that you draw in as anti-work comedies, like where do you feel like was an example of one that truly delivered on this practice of refusal? And where is one that maybe um, is just kind of like a deference, a deferral, a kind of like more of a coping mechanism than an actual treatment of the Mm-hmm. Of, of the problem. Um, yeah. So or is it, are they all kind of somewhere on the spectrum <laughs> of like totally fixing it? Obviously nothing really totally fixes mm-hmm. um, it versus like completely a bait and switch. Yeah. So I think, I think it is something like a spectrum, right? I don't think that there is a perfect, you know, representation that <laughs> unlocks these these contradictions, but there are better and worse um, 
comedies against work, right? So I would say like on that spectrum, something like The Office is actually really um, problematic because because of the ways in which it appears to us as anti-work comedy, right? And in fact, is all about kind of upholding this capitalist work ethic and romanticizing it. I mean, I don't think there's anything more dystopian than the fact that elementary school children um, love The Office, right? (laughs) That The Office was the most uh, popular uh, streaming series of the pandemic, right? Uh, when people are getting out of the, these workplaces, that's exactly when this, I mean, it's not as if it wasn't popular before, but it was more popular in 2020 and 2021 than when it was on the air by far. Right. Um, So the idea that there's this period where we're breaking away from work (laughs) and the stronghold of work potentially, right. Where we can start to trouble that relationship. And that's exactly when that particular series is invited into our living rooms um, is, you know, it's terrifying. Um, And I would say, um, yeah, very much on the kind of reactionary end of that spectrum. I look at, um, well, maybe I'll answer that within genre first, which is like, I think that the show Abbott Elementary, which I didn't get a chance to write about because it came out so recently, um, is inhabiting the same genre um, of the mockumentary sitcom, but its orientation towards work is really different. And I think um, much more complex in that it's following these teachers whose day-to-day kind of conflicts are all about how to um, grapple with this idea of a labor of love, right? Like how much their heart is um, involved (laughs) in their work um, and how much care is demanded of them for these children who have, you know, often have no other options. I think it's a really, um, you know, beautiful re-rendering of that, of that particular genre. So that's just my answer within that genre. But then, um, you know, I look at Maria Bamford's stand-up comedy as being um, really, and she's kind of the end point of my book um, as well, uh, as being a kind of transcendent anti-work comedy um, that, um, you know, provides a kind of methodological understanding of uh of what that means right that comedy is a way of estranging us from our relationship from work even even in brief moments and giving us kind of glimpses into um what a life against work might be right um so i think i try to mix enough positive examples of of what that looks like but in each of them it's you know it's there's contradictions, there's, there's problems. And the best anti-work comedy actually is just about showing us what those problems are so that we can kind of lay them bare and, and think about them instead of masquerading work as, as something that it, that it isn't, um, which, you know, 
a lot of these sitcoms end up end up doing right is is kind of disciplining us as workers more than um, providing us that release valve that we really want from it. Right, because anti-war comedy isn't necessarily about like um, saying that you're not going to work anymore. It's about showing the problems of work, and I think showing the work of work that mm-hmm. it's hard because even when you're even anti like when you're picturing a life without work or a work a life where you're taking a break from work it doesn't mean that it's always it's not all like you know cucumbers on your eyes um, (laughs) restful it can be like the life of like working communally towards something Mm -hmm. or family and friend relationships it doesn't mean that you're like completely retreating from your responsibility to other people just means that maybe you're not doing it in the in the structure of of the work of like a capitalist workplace or a place that extracts value maybe without putting anything back, which I think mm-hmm. um, you see really laid bare when you look at the the labor of comedy. Mm-hmm. And when you talk about the 1979 comedy strike, one of the things that I think connects like comedians and academics is this idea of if you love what you do, you're not really working. So we're not going to pay you. <laughs> um, Absolutely. <laughs> once you start hating it, we'll pay you more. And it's like, well, there like if i hated it if i'm you know maybe i hate that i'm not being paid can that get me more payment um Mm -hmm. i think that and so you talk a lot particularly and i'd say like the first half of the book is a lot about the labor of making comedy Mm -hmm. um and you talk about this tension between what you call jokesterism Mm. and the feminist or comedy killjoy which you attribute to sarah ahmed Mm -hmm. um but can you talk a little bit about that distinction between jokesterism and the killjoy um because i think that that is been i feel like boy that comes up that's been coming up a lot lately (laughs) for like feels like lately but i can't i can't determine a start point absolutely Um, I don't want to start, I don't want it to be 2016, but it's not, you mm-hmm. know, this idea of jokesterism and, and sort of operating in, uh, I don't want to say bad faith, but I think that these dis- these positions of like, it's the comedy, comedian doing the work of being a jokester or being potentially the critic or comedy comedian being killjoy, mm-hmm. but it is also about like the cultural work that these figures do. Yeah. So, um, Let's see. Well, the jokester, I I draw from Lauren Berlant, um, who wrote this this great New Inquiry um, essay, kind of at the height of Me Too, looking at a lot of it is kind of actually it seems inspired by the Al Franken <laughs> incident, but wow, it yeah. feels um, like a great framework for thinking about um, some of the broader tendencies of that moment and how they, I mean, fold into the present. The jokester figure um, is kind of based in a Hobbesian theory of comedy as pure domination. Um, The jokester uses comedy to exert his power. Um, And I write about specifically kind of jokester managerialism, like the jokester boss figure um, who uses and I, I don't want to just talk about comedy or excuse me about, I do want to talk about comedy. I don't want to just talk about the office, but it it's reminiscent of the um, David Brent character, the, the boss in the UK version of the office, Ricky Gervais, who calls himself a, 
chilled out entertainer and he, you know, why aren't his workers more um, grateful that they have this chilled out entertainer boss who, you know, sexually harasses them and makes fun of their weight and makes all these like really um, disturbing jokes and creates a toxic environment around him, but all under the guise of just joking. Right. And so I'm kind of following that from this, you know, much more straightforward figure of the jokester boss, um, the jokester authoritarian and thinking about it more broadly um, as a kind of fascist tendency that we're seeing in comedy right now. Um, And exactly why like the alt-right has claimed comedy as safe ground for itself. Um, And so that's a kind of method of comedy or a practice of comedy that I'm looking at and I counterpose it to the, the killjoy. So the story goes that feminism is antithetical to comedy, that feminism, at least according to Louis C.K., right? <laughs> feminism and comedy are the ultimate enemies. And that was very much the, the story of comedy that I grew up with and that I think is familiar to most people. Um, the idea that once you start critiquing or unpacking comedy, you know, even if we're not talking about feminists doing this, that you're you're somehow betraying the comedy, right? That you're not supposed to analyze it or think about it um, or, you know, dissect the frog, so to speak. Um, so I'm kind of contesting that and thinking about, you know, killjoys as, you know, being hilarious, first and foremost. Um, all the killjoys that I know are really funny <laughs> and... Um, are funny through analysis and critique. And it's um, inspiring to watch, you know, my best friend Jasmine kind of pick apart, you know, literally any cultural object, you know, she can draw out the jokes and the problems and, and really go for it. Um, So I've known that my whole life, even though I've been told this thing about, about feminism being unfunny, right? Um, but I'm thinking about these as kind of competing practices of, of comedy. One that um, is about domination and violence and the, the assertion of power and the other that's kind of a collective refusal and that's more oriented towards healing pract- a healing practice. Um, kind of, I, I always tend to use this med- metaphor about like, you know, drawing pus out of the wound, right? Like, I think that's what the killjoy is doing. <laughs> um, and that there's like, a, there are actually people who are fascinated by that um, visually and experientially, but that that's, I think, one of the things that you're doing um, when you're acting as killjoy. So um, I think that those are really helpful frameworks for um thinking about comedic practices and how they relate to power specifically, which is really like at the heart of what I'm talking about with comedy against work, right? Is like how to create a kind of anti-authoritarian collective revolutionary communist (laughs) comedy. Mm -hmm. Um, And I start, start really with that, with that vision of killjoy comedy. I mean, I think one thing that sticks out in that distinction for me, too, is that um, the idea that being the killjoy, sort of like standing back and like critiquing is less of a 
is less brave than being the comedian standing alone in the spotlight. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, doesn't really doesn't really pan out, and in, in particular when you're looking at the jokester, because there's this this toxic thread of plausible deniability in the jokester figure that they can right. always just say they were joking. Right. And so no matter how far they go, they can always retreat back into just joking. And then as you talk about this kind of like reverse narrative of like, I'm being bullied, I'm being picked on. Exactly. Uh, and I was just joking. Um, whereas the killjoy who is like ostensibly safe from their like little, from their little, you know, critical perch or something Mm -hmm. um, is the one who's actually saying something that they can't take back that they're not they're not working from a place of plausible deniability and um, you know Mm -hmm. multi-vocal deceptive language that allows them to like you know I'm not going to say the bad thing you think the bad thing I'm just going to lead you there Mm -hmm. Um, uh, there's a kind of there's there's more sort of confidence and bravery in that moment um, regardless of who I think is being funnier like this question of if comedy (laughs) speaks truth Mm -hmm. like who's actually willing to say it and not say it in a way that they can they can sort of deny it later Um, and I wonder how much that maps onto your discussion about authenticity Mm -hmm. um, and who gets to be authentic in this space of comedy and who's like who have we decided are like the authentic comedy workers versus and mm-hmm. what sort of like what spaces are left for female authenticity or what how do how is female authenticity recognized in a different way? Maria Bamford being obviously sort of an example of, I think, a woman comedian who's taking authenticity away from <laughs> men like Louis C.K. I mean, like you think you're authentic, like you're not. And now watch me. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, well, I look at authenticity, yeah, as a kind of weapon of, um, yeah, of this kind, it's within this genealogy of of the jokester, right, of um, a particular work ethic ascribed to white men in comedy, that they can inhabit comfortably or ascribe to themselves. Um, Yeah. they're often called very brave comedians <laughs> just to, to riff off that bravery. Men are brave when they do stand up, and women are brave when they are above a size four and pose in a bathing suit. <laughs> like that's who gets to be brave. Like those are absolutely very gendered ideas of courage for under sure. Fire. Yeah. And um, so I, I look at it that way uh, is this, uh, as this work ethic, um, that enables um, abuse in workplaces and things like this, right? So um, Louis C.K. is a great example of it, um, that, you know, his kind of toxic energy. I mean, he was before, um, even before we knew the extent of the kind of behind-the-scenes harassment that he was... um, engaging in, you know, propagating in, in the comedy industry, um, on stage, he was, you know, um, simulating masturbation (laughs) onto, onto the audience frequently and, and kind of, um, yeah, exhibiting this behavior and that was authentic, right? Um, that was his, his being vulnerable, um, 
And so he can use that as a kind of power. Whereas we look at someone like um, Cameron Esposito, who um, did a great special called Rape Jokes in 2019. I think it's a great um, imminent critique of the comedy, comedy industry. But she's very much putting herself in a position of vulnerability um, because um, the second that a femme comedian becomes quote unquote authentic, they're unfunny, right? It's the the trappings of the killjoy. Um, so it's very much a, a way of kind of masking these power dynamics uh, that are taking place in comedy. And it's, it's, it's a, it's a way of romanticizing um, the the work ethic of of you know vastly large, uh, vastly white men. And one of the things I think a lot about with this, and I write about in the book, is um, for instance Andy Kaufman, who's um, his kind of shtick was to be anti-authentic, right? At the same time, but he was still mobilizing all of these tropes of authenticity and um, doing it to such an extent that it kind of legitimated, um, you know, abusive behavior or, you know, um, drew a question mark around it. So when he was um, wrestling women, right. um, He was so quote unquote committed to that, um, that, still people are kind of wondering, you know, was that, was he making fun of himself and, um, and not the women he was wrestling? Was he like, was that a kind of weirdly like feminist move on his part? Or was it always kind of keeping, bringing um, the women he was wrestling in as the butt of the joke too, right? Was it like actually really deeply anti-feminist? I think those questions um, come up because authenticity has this, um, it, it becomes a kind of move that, that his comedy was making um, where you're always kind of guessing. Um, and it also masks um, work and workplaces in under a kind of guise of masculine artistry, right? So there's a long history and I bring in, you know, the history of method actors into this, their commitment to this, like their authentic commitment to these parts is uh, celebrated. But if we look at any of the workplaces that these actors were <laughs> inhabiting, like it's, it's despicable. I, um, you know, probably the worst example is, um, you know, Marlon Brando um, in Last Tango in Paris, like deciding I'm, I regret that I've, I'm forgetting his co-star's name, but, you know, deciding on her behalf that he should rape her with, with a butter stick. Right. Um, and his decision was coming from this kind of method place, but she, um, her consent was um, not required for that decision. Right. Because of this, um, gendered aspect of who does and doesn't get to be authentic um, in these workplaces. So I'm kind of thinking through this as like, like any of these categories, it's not just about comedy, but it's about how they kind of bleed into other workplaces and, um, you know, help 
you know, think about analogies. Um, and I, I do look a lot of, at creative workplaces as being particularly ripe for this like toxic energy <laughs> to come into them. But I don't think that, I think the analogy to um, the Academy is a really important one um, in the book, for instance. I, I don't think it's specific to the culture industry at all. Well, I also, before we, I'm looking at the clock, before we close up, I want to think a little bit more about how wildly contemporary this book is, how (laughs) often you see things, I'm sure that when you were working on this, it felt like, um, I'm thinking of like the movie They Live, you put on the glasses and like you see, I don't know, that's maybe a weird example mm-hmm. of like just the idea that looking around, people can go look up They Live if they feel John Carpenter, um, but like putting on the glasses and you suddenly see the world like completely differently um, or all through sort of your, this particular ideological lens. When you were working on this book, I imagine that you found examples in support of this, of these sort of this argument about comedy and anti-work everywhere because comedy is so saturated. Like we are so saturated with comedy from everywhere. And of course um, we're all working all the time. Mm -hmm. And if we're not working, we're thinking about why we should be working or (laughs) we're trying to devise a life with, uh, you know, I, you know, inject eye roll here, work life balance, Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) all of that stuff. So, what was it like working on something so contemporary? I ask this because I think a lot of scholars and listeners have particular have projects with sort of a particular end date, and it allows them to, you know, mm-hmm. all of this this stuff that your entire book might be like, and in conclusion, still happens. Um, <laughs> but you were probably taking in new input all the time. But eventually, you have to finish writing a book. Mm-hmm. So, how did you like? How did it feel working in this vein? And is there any, you mentioned Abbott Elementary, but I'm curious about like, even now, do you see things and you think that could go in the book or that could have been in the book? Yeah, it's, yeah. So it's, it's a lot like grasping at sand and I am constantly (laughs) thinking about new things I could incorporate into this. But I think that's part of the point is I wanted to, I, I'm anti-completist. I'm not trying to to show you everything um, anti-work comedy in this book. I'm trying to um, elaborate a kind of framework or a, a way of thinking about comedy that readers can then go on to apply to, you know, whatever is the hot topic of that week or something like that, right? Um, and... I, yeah, there was always a temptation to add more. My, I probably drove my editors crazy in the last stages where I was like, well, I want to put this footnote, please. Like, there's this more recent thing that just happened that really, you know, distills this point. But ultimately, it really is about um, just setting up a way of thinking about comedy so that um, so that it can be useful, so that it has, has a future. Um, I do write about, I think... The earliest stuff that I'm writing about is like Mom's Mabley and <laughs> Vaudeville and things like that, and then I go up to the to the present. But I um, I rewrote the book. Basically, um, it was a it was an earlier book before COVID, but then um, I kind of decided that you know, while on the one hand, this is, this is something that I think can be applied to 
different periods and um, is working towards a kind of epistemology um, that I think is useful elsewhere. It's also um, really just trying to capture this moment of 2020 to 2021, 2022, um, when I think, you know, a lot of these questions were becoming legible in, in beautiful ways. And um, yeah, I just wanted to kind of speak to that, speak to that moment. And um, yeah, I was grappling with the irony of, um, okay, I have this work project, it's about anti-work, right? Um what you were saying earlier about trying to find like F boy Island or something like this, trying to find things that were not so many interesting (laughs) things about F boy Island though. I was like, exactly foiled again. Either, either that show is smarter (laughs) than it think than anyone thinks, or I'm smarter than I ever thought. Cause I'll be like, there's my take, but I haven't yet. I want to keep it for myself. It's a little Island of stupid pleasures. <laughs> it's the life of a cultural critic though, right? Yeah. Like you just can't turn it off. And no. what I had been thinking was, you know, this, this way of escaping from work ended up becoming my, the site of work for me. And I had terrible insomnia during um, the first year of the pandemic and would wake up at one or two in the morning and come down to my kitchen and just work on this project and it was in a lot of ways how I how I dealt with what was going on how I kind of organized my thoughts around what was going on in this chaotic moment um and it was also just a time when I needed to heal from a lot of things and um I I found the process of writing about it really pretty healing um in surprising ways so um yeah, I don't. I think that that, as far as I understand from those who I've, you know, shared the book with, it it does seem that like these last couple of years, um, a lot of things opened up in our imaginations, and um, I hope that the book really speaks to that to to readers who've given a chance. I think it will. I think it's a really enlightening and potentially a very healing read for a lot of people who are trying to, you know, devise a meaningful life like that has work in it, but maybe can still be anti-work at the same time. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. And so I just want to thank you so much for being here. And I want to just give you an opportunity now to uh, draw any attention to any other book-related events you may be doing, any future projects or pieces you would like listeners to be aware of. Um, oh, thank you. Yeah. Sure. Um, I am uh, the editor or co-editor, excuse me, <laughs> of uh, Blind Field, uh, a journal of cultural inquiry, which is a very kind of lo-fi DIY um, counter institution. <laughs> and we put up um, essays about contemporary culture, maybe once a month, a couple times a month at this point. But I, um, I always appreciate supporters of that project and, um, for keeping it alive. And it's been a nice kind of autonomous space for, um, myself and my co-editor, Joanna Isaacson, who, um, also wrote a book called Stepford Wives, just came out through common notion press. Um, so I want to plug that for it too. Um, 
And then, yeah, I've just been finishing up um, an epistolary novella, actually, with my friend um, Max Fox called Fag Hag. And that's what I've been working on and wanting to um, find a home for next. But um, that's really all I have in terms of promotion. I'm going to be bringing the book on tour at some point, but it's hard to say right now with um, disease and, <laughs> you know, I'm just trying to, to figure out what that looks like. So I know the um, pandemic's yeah. over unless you go anywhere and then you're like, right. oh, the pandemic is still exists. So, um, yeah. that's plenty. That's, that's more than enough you have on your, on your, on your work plate. So thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you. And, um, and for putting in an extra mention for your journal and, uh, Again, thank you so much, Madeline, for joining us today. Thanks, you've Annie. been you've been listening to Madeline Lane McKinley on her book Comedy Against Work. I'm Annie Burke and this is New Books in Film.